Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today's conversation is called Plea and Participation. Enjoy. I don't want to burst out crying, so I'm going to say I love you both, and thank you for taking the time to share your experience and your story with our community. I know I'm probably going to just cry through this whole thing, so um, I'm Eric. Uh, The reason why this past month, but especially George's death, since his death, I have, I wake up crying every day. Um, And the reason why this hits so close to home for me, um, I was born uh, June 6, 1960 in South Central Los Angeles. Um, We lived in the city when the the Watts riots happened in 65. And in 1966, we moved to Altadena, where my father became an an Altadena sheriff. In the 60s and 70s, the sheriffs were known uh, to be extremely abusive and oppressive. Uh, They would constantly uh, pick up people of color for no reason, take them into the, the foothills, beat them down, and then bring them into the police station. My father was one of those, and he was no different at home. Um, I've been beaten um, with his patrol belt. I've been beaten with metal shoe stretchers. I've been um, beaten with his police baton. And I remember the day that my mother was beaten so badly, she had to be taken to the hospital And when she called the police for help, his partner showed up and said, we're not doing anything about this. He's just had a bad day. To to be in law enforcement is a calling. And for those of you out there who are in law enforcement, I thank you for your service. I'm grateful that you live up to that calling, but I'm constantly aware of those who are not. Gotta remember what I wrote down. Um, Last year, I I also found out that my, uh, my grandfather, my mother's father, Um, We were at a family reunion, and my uncle shared the story that my grandfather was a police officer in Oakland, and that he would come home with his partners, and they would brag about the African Americans that they had either beaten or killed that day. And then when his partners would leave, then my grandfather would start beating the family. When I turned 17, I made the decision that this would stop in my family. And I have committed my life 
to ending abuse and oppression in any way possible. And after my daughter was born, my daughter was born the day that Rodney King was beaten. And in 29 years, with these nationally publicized cases, there have only been two convictions. I want justice. I want the justice that we've talked about in in Amos chapter 5. I want what God says that he wants, oceans of justice. I want to know one day what it's like to swim in that ocean. And I need your help to do that. Mark. All right. Um, What I shared was um, Eric matters to me. I've had a relationship with Eric for six years. He's a brother to me. He helped me find uh, an apartment to live in with my family. And uh, I helped him find New Abbey. Uh, And uh, so when something happens to Eric, it matters to me. And I know that we've all kind of seen what's happening, what's been happening. And there's a a level of, uh, there's empathy and we feel things. We want to respond. those cycles change, those emotions change, but our relationship to people who are in those situations doesn't change. So when something happens to Eric, it matters to me. Uh, And I think the the invitation of us as people, as we follow Jesus, who did the same thing, and he didn't separate himself from the marginalized, and it cost him his life. And he didn't back down from that choice and that solidarity when he was given choice after choice after choice, he continued to identify himself with those people. So as a family, I think we have that opportunity. Uh, and just like being said earlier, <laughs> we have to let our black sisters and brothers mourn and grieve and try to find joy in pockets where they're not responsible for your education as a person who is not of color. And people of color, we, we do need that relationship and, and we need you to press in. But I, I need you to do the work of reading a book before you come to me to tell you something that somebody else has already written several books about. I will, I, and that's part of why I'm even here today. Corey invited me and, and I, I, I was kind of dealing with my own emotions. And it was like, I have a relationship with Corey, but more so I believe in us as a community. And, and I will give my story or whatever I can for us as a community to become family. So as we do that, in my mind, I imagine my little multi-ethnic daughters running around, the world that MLK talked about as we become family, that our children will run and play together. The children of diverse, the things we say every week, gay, straight, black, white, Latino, whatever, wherever you come from, to have our children running around loving each other, with each other, standing with each other. And we can do that too as adults. So I appreciate this space. That's the invitation that we have. Um, The day after George died, I woke up 
turned on my phone, um, looked at my social media feed, and one of my dear friends, his Instagram post was a hashtag of, of his name, followed by a hashtag of the names of his sons. And I was like, oh my God, what happened? And then when I looked at the, the post, he was asking the question, if you woke up this morning to this hashtag, what would you do? How would you respond? And so with that, um, we want you to go into your groups with this question. How would your actions change if someone you knew was killed by police violence? For the last couple of months, I've been planning on doing this series uh, on the Lord's Prayer because a lot of the conversations that we had had uh, that I've had individually with people uh, through COVID was this reality that there's uncertainty, uh, that they can't grasp what's going on in the world. The deconstruction is not necessarily working for them in this moment, and they need something to hold on to. They, they want faith. They want God. They want to pray again. And then as we've encountered everything that's happened over the last few weeks uh, with violence uh, towards black people in America, I realized the same, same questions. Whether it's a pandemic or these violent murders, it's uncertainty, it's powerlessness, it's hopelessness, it's desiring for something more to be able to hold on to. And one of the big ideas that Jesus gets to in the Lord's Prayer is really just asking this bigger question is, does this kingdom actually work? Does the kingdom that you're a part of, does the reality that you live in, does the perspective, the government, the politics, the family systems, does it work? Switch out kingdom for the real places and structures in your world that you are a part of, does it work? And by does it work, does it actually work for everyone? And so to talk about that, we're gonna talk about it in a really big way, and then we're gonna move it and make it really personal as we think about the realities of what are happening in our world right now. So we're going to do some things. We're going to talk about what is, and we're going to talk about the wheel. And if we're going to talk about the wheel, then we're going to talk about by Jews and for Jews. And if we can understand that, then we can understand what Pax Romana was, and is that really Pax Americana? Then we're going to talk about being domesticated. And if it's domesticated, maybe we have a bigger conversation of our, and then holy other. And then I was deeply troubled by an LA Times article. And if we can talk about an LA Times article, then we're gonna move into the practical and answer real questions about our proximity and relationships in our lives. Think deeper about our hashtags. And if we can do that, I wanna share some stories about stickers and sidewalks. And then we're gonna get into hope and talk about hope as if we really are in this rowboat together. How reactivity now is important and how proactivity in the long haul is where we need to be and that our pleas and our participation are necessary. What is in the United States of America is that this kingdom of the United States does not work for everybody. That for hundreds of years in particular, it has not worked for black Americans. That over the last few months, there's been a pressure cooker because of a pandemic that is just pointing out the inequalities that have already been going on in our world. 
that black people are dying at a disproportionate rate to COVID-19 than their white counterparts. That black people are dying disproportionately to COVID-19 because of lots of different systems that are not working. And now we're seeing that. And we can see that and we can talk about that, but how do we participate in the change of those systems? We can talk about the fact that in Chicago, 30% of the population is black and yet 70% of the people who've died from COVID-19 are black. We can talk about that for the last decades, there's been studies by Harvard that show that when a white person and a black person go into their doctor showing the same symptoms, that black people disproportionately have worse results and do not get offered the same level of healthcare. We can talk about the fact that in urban environments that black people live in denser areas, in denser homes because of hundreds of years of systemic racism. Because after World War II, whether you were white or black and you fought for this country, only white people were offered GI bills to buy homes in suburbia while their black counterparts were left to ghettos. We can talk about the fact that financial and legal systems are created to be complicated so that people who have less education and less socioeconomic power do not get to participate in them. We could go from system to system to system to talk about the subjugation of black people in the United States of America. And I say all of this as a white man of privilege. Let me be incredibly clear about what is. Every day, I do not fear for my safety. I've never gone on a run and been scared. I've never feared for my life because of a police officer. I do, know, I do not know what it's like to be judged because of the color of my skin. And if we're gonna talk about what is, we have to be honest about who we are and where we're at. That part of what is and the bigger beliefs that I have come from faith come from the scriptures, come from these bigger narratives that we're a part of, come from a narrative that is about liberation and justice. That the most ancient peoples in this world and the religions that they created, those religions were always oriented around their empires. The Babylonians had gods around their empires. The Romans had gods around their empires. Name a superpower that's existed in the ancient world and their gods were serving the power systems of that empire. There was this wheel that was constantly going on that for 99% of the population, you were in the wheel. That your fate was set just because you were born, not as the royalty of that empire. And the narrative that happened in all of those ancient religions was this. There is no beginning and there is no end to your story. There is only a middle that you were born into the middle and just accept your fate because this is who you are. The radicalness of the scriptures is that for the first time in history, check the facts anthropologically, check them sociologically, check them historically, is that in Judaism, we have the first moments where this God is not a God of the empires. This is a God of the slaves. This is a God of the ones who are being subjugated. This is a God who liberates. 
And I so often love to use the word liberates over salvation because salvation for us is some narrative that we've been given that if we do good or say the right prayer or get baptized by the right denomination, then one day we too will float around in a puffy set of clouds and eat Philadelphia cream cheese with cherubs and harps or something like that. But that is not the narrative. The narrative that we've been given is one that is radical. It's radical in this, that the earliest stories that we have in our scriptures are stories of a God who fights on the behalf of the oppressed. That the Bible was written by Jews, an oppressed group, for Jews, an oppressed group. Later on, it will be opened up to Gentiles. Meaning this, that for most of us living in the United States of America, we do not truly understand the power and the radical ideas that the scriptures are giving us because we are powerful people. That for most of Christian theology over the last 500 years, it has been written by powerful white men from European countries and the United States of America, meaning this, that the theological lenses that most of us have been given, particularly in evangelicalism, one of the most powerful sects of Christianity that the world has ever seen, has not seen the scriptures through the lenses that the scriptures were actually written in. The scriptures were written by oppressed people pleading to a God to be liberated from the oppression of the empires that were subjugating them. It is not a story of powerful people keeping more power that we need to change our lenses from 30,000 feet if we're ever gonna change our lenses in reality on the ground. And so by the time that you get to Jesus, there's a Roman empire that's going on and Rome is doing what all empires have always done. There are a few people at the top who have all of the power and everyone else is subjugated to make sure that that power continues. That there was this idea of Pax Romana which means the peace of Rome. That the peace of Rome was something that was talked about for 200 years, but the peace of Rome was just an illusion. And it was an illusion that was built on the backs of slaves. And it was an illusion that was built on the backs of making sure that everybody was subjugated and in servitude to the larger ideas of the empire. And here's the reality for many Roman citizens. Were they evil people? Were they malicious people? Were they trying to do wrong? Probably not. Did they benefit because of the subjugation and of the oppression and repression of other people in their society? A thousand percent they did. Pax Americana, the illusion of the peace of the United States of America is just the same. That if in your life you have the freedom, the privilege, the power, the capacity to not experience hurt and pain, to not know about uh, the systematic problems that are going on in this world until they're put on the internet, then you're living in the peace of, uh, of America that's false. Are you evil? Are you malicious? Are you a bad person? Probably not. But our ignorance, particularly white people, to the power and privilege that we have is real. It's real. And part of the reason that I'm preaching today is because it's real. And that if white people of power and privilege don't stand up, the systems won't change. That we have a part to participate in this story. Part of the ways that we change this story is that we need to stop domesticating God. That evangelicalism is guilty of this. 
that most of evangelicalism is white, powerful megachurches telling narratives about God where we don't want to get into political issues, where we don't want to talk about what's really going on, that we just want to give another sermon on whatever sermon series that we're on and not talk about the real pain and oppression that's happening in the world. If you know anybody that is going to a church like that, tell them to stop. They are participating in the subjugation of people in this country. If you worked at a job and you knew they never talked about the racism that's going on in the country, if you worked at a job and knew that they didn't hire black people, if you worked at a job and know that they wouldn't hire LGBTQ people, if you worked at a job and women weren't allowed to speak, would you keep working at that job? And yet somehow we've made ourselves believe that it's okay to participate in faith communities that do the exact same thing. And it's not okay. It should not take a video of a police officer with his foot on a man's neck for us to say that this is not okay. We don't know it's not okay because we've domesticated ourselves with the story that we're buying into. We said that this story is just about a heaven one day and not about the liberation of all people here and now. A heaven later one day is comfortable, it's neutral, it's vanilla. It requires nothing of you but to say a prayer at some point. The liberation of everybody here and now will require everything of you. Jesus never once asked us to worship him, but he constantly says, follow me. And the price of following, the price of standing up for those who do not have power will cost you everything. That is the story that we have domesticated Jesus over the time, just like we domesticate all of the prophets. We've domesticated St. Francis, somebody who is speaking for the poor in his time, to a water fountain. We domesticated Martin Luther King Jr. by giving him a holiday in some ways. We always want to normalize the prophets so that we don't know the radical things that they were actually saying. We domesticate Jesus by commercializing. We domesticate Jesus by never talking about honest things in the church. We domesticate Jesus when we tell people that they can't riot, that they can't be angry, that they can't be mad. When we don't give people a voice. That's how we domesticate. But Jesus was radical. Jesus came into a Roman empire and into a kingdom that did not work for everybody. And Jesus was somebody who constantly said, if you are my follower, if you are one of my students, I will walk places and you will follow me. And those are uncomfortable places. We're gonna stand with women caught in adultery. We're gonna stand with people who are filled with demons, dead people, right? Us Samaritans, which in another country, we would say this, you're gonna stand with people who don't look like you, don't have the same gender as you, don't have the same sexuality as you, don't vote the same way as you. Jesus was constantly pushing the radical borders. Jesus was constantly challenging the systems of his day. Jesus challenged family systems. We have stories where Jesus says, if your family system, if this kingdom doesn't work, go find a better kingdom. Who is my brother and sister? Who is my mother, Jesus says. Jesus challenges the religious systems because he knew that the religious systems of his day were oppressing poor people. Jesus challenged ethnic systems. He would constantly say to the Jews of his day, if you're living in a reality where you're safe and you're normalized and you've domesticated God because you believe that somehow what's in your blood is what's saving you, then you're missing the true liberation that you're supposed to be a part of as the people of God. Jesus challenged political systems by going to a cross, 
that even the most powerful empire of the day, the Roman Empire, could not keep Jesus quiet. That is the story of freedom and resurrection. That the story that we participate in as a people of faith is radical. And sometimes we wake up because of these moments. If this is one of those moments where we're all a little bit more awake, where we can all experience what's in the air in a little bit more palpable way, know that the story of your faith has been radical all along, but we've been domesticating it a long time because when we domesticate it, we keep everybody comfortable. But the narrative is not comfortable if it does not work for everybody. The pandemic has already shown us we are not going back to a new normal. We are at a tipping point in our country where we cannot go back to a new normal, where essential workers can't afford the essentials in their own life. We will not go back to a new normal where most of the essential workers are black and brown and they don't get health care. We will not go back to a new normal where most of the essential workers make $15 an hour. We will not go back to a new normal where essential workers get their throats stepped on by police officers. We will not go back to those new normals. Because that kingdom doesn't work. And that kingdom hasn't been working for a long time. And there are moments that we feel and experience and live into that in a new way. And this is one of those corporate moments for all of us. That there are literally cities on fire all over this country because people need a voice. And people should have a voice. But because we've been muzzling that voice for decades and centuries. And it's not okay. Jesus came to give a voice to the voiceless, to give power to the powerless, to make sure that this kingdom works for everybody and it is not working for everybody. I completely forgot about reading the Bible passages that I was going to. So follow along with me in Matthew 5, 6. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy and may your kingdom come soon and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer that we've domesticated for centuries, but this is a radical prayer that Jesus is inviting us into. Jesus is saying that our Father, our Mother, the divine that we call out to is never on the side of oppression. That this God is our God. It is not my God or the white people's gods or Presbyterians' gods or this group's gods. It is our God. It is a radical invitation into the plurality of all of humanity. It is an invitation into a different kind of kingdom. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And maybe a better way of saying that because we don't have kingdoms anymore. God, may your reality and the perspective that you have of us as human beings take place here. And that we say this prayer every day, not just so that we can normalize it and domesticate it. We say this prayer as a reminder to set our intentions each day to be a part of that kingdom being enacted on this earth. To be a part of that present new normal that needs to take place so that real transformation and that real change happens. If we just say prayers to say prayers, if we just say prayers to placate people, we are not actually following in the radical call that Jesus is inviting us to. Would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That kingdom is not being enacted in the United States of America right now. And we are guilty of that. Let me say this. As a white person who has power and privilege, I am guilty of that. 
And I'm guilty of it for a lot of different reasons. Without fail, when my children see a police officer, they get stickers. Every single time. They have no fear of a police officer and they run up to them and they get a sticker. For six years, I worked at Pasadena High School and I worked with the basketball team there and primarily young African-American men. And I remember coming outside one day of the school and see three of these young men lined up on the sidewalk with police officers standing over them, each of them asking to empty out their pockets. Why? The cops were curious. I'm not saying all cops are bad. I'm saying that my children will not live with that fear. That is power and privilege that I have. That one of my students one time in the leadership program that I did at Pasadena High School, he was driving home late one night to Northwest Pasadena. He had a bunch of buddies in his car. They had just been playing Xbox at a friend's house. There were four young black men and a police officer pulled them over. And these four young men in the back of this car who've been playing Xbox all night realized that two of them hadn't had their seatbelts on in the back seat. So in panic, because they don't wanna have to tell their mom when they get home that they got a ticket, they're trying to put their seatbelt on. As the police officer comes around the car, he sees these kids reaching down to put their seatbelts on and pulls a gun into their face. My children will never have guns pulled into their face. We all have to know where we're at in the narrative. We all have to name the power and privilege that we have or don't have. That so much of this sermon is for the white community saying, if you have power and privilege, if this is the moment, if this is actually the moment that we feel that we're waking up, then we need to do more about it. And we need to do more about it because we're the ones with power and privilege that we're the ones who have the ability in a different way to go put our bodies on the line now. That I was completely taken back by what Eric Johnson had shared. He shared it with me yesterday about this, what his friend did of putting his hashtag up. And on my garage, I have this whiteboard and it's where I kind of work out my sermons. And I put the hashtag there, justice for Brittany Barron. I'm not saying that to exploit. I'm not saying that to sensationalize. I put it on my board to personalize. That Brittany and I have a beautiful friendship and we've had one for a long time. That we don't have to have any conversations with one another, but we get to have them all of the time. That when black people are killed in the United States of America, I don't have to call her and ask her to somehow appease my white guilt that we have a relationship where we talk about all kinds of stuff in our lives. She talks about being black because she's black. I talk about being white because I'm white. We talk about economics. We talk about our jobs. We talk about all kinds of things because we have proximity and relationships to one another. And for many of us, we need to personalize this narrative. What would we do? How would we act if somebody who was close to us, if it was their hashtag, how would we change our actions in this world? that we shouldn't be waiting around for the next killing to change our actions, that we need to be engaged in this radical new kingdom now, that we need to be engaged in this transformation and this healing now. That Desmond Tutu has this powerful story when he talks about this idea of hope. 
And he says, even though I lived through 50 years of apartheid South Africa, I always had hope. And his story was that hope for him was the capacity to stare into the storm and stand there while the wind and the water beat against him. And he always had hope that even though the storm is raging against me, that one day he would see clear skies. And so my challenge is this for my white privileged friends who are listening, that we are a rowboat and not a cruise ship. My challenge is that if you are a white privileged American, it is our turn to row. It is our turn to stand into the storm and to demand change that black bodies have already given all of the blood and sweat that they need to in this story. And it is time for white people to be the first to protest. It is time for white people to enact change and transformation in this world. That it is our job to stand into the storm and shield our black brothers and sisters behind us so that they no longer have to endure these atrocities. It happens in reaction and react right now. Protest, riot, put all of your stuff on social media. Do it because this is moving you. If this is the moment where you buy books or listen to a podcast or watch a movie, do whatever you need to do to keep being proactive in your education. But my challenge is this, will you keep standing in the storm six months from now when the news cycle is over? Because it's personal to you, because you have proximity of relationships of people that matter to you, and you would never ever imagine or want to live in a world where they would become a hashtag. And let me give you practical advice on that. Because New Abbey has participated in these conversations a long time because of people who have had privilege and power in this community. That you can participate with chapters of BLM in Los Angeles and Pasadena and all around this country. That you can reach out to the NAACP about places to get involved, places to donate your money. You can reach out to an organization like LA Voice if you want to get organized. That each of us, and this is my challenge right now, is that we all have the power to put political pressure on the people that we vote for. Let me give you a very specific example of how it works in Pasadena and most cities. In the city of Pasadena, a lot of times systems, police systems have not changed because of police unions. Police unions are incredibly powerful and they have a lot of money that keep people jobs, even if people do awful and vile things. Police unions are approved by police chiefs and city managers. City managers have their jobs because of the people that you vote for. If you want to be actively and proactively engaged in this conversation, if you want to see change at a local level, which is where change happens, so that in the city that you live in, wherever you're at, you can help ensure that somebody will not be murdered because of the color of their skin jogging down the street, then you can call your political, the, the politicians in your city right now and you can begin to demand change. And you can say things like this. If you want my vote or the vote of people around me, then I need to make sure that when the police union contract comes back every other year as it does, that you are not gonna just rubber stamp it as most cities do until we see that police officers are wearing things like body cams, until we see that police officers will have punishment, right? Well, there will be justice if they do something that is horrific or violent towards other people, that there are things in place that there will be uh, reformation in the justice system, that we as citizens have that power to enact change in a proactive way. And the setup for this is that work is not sexy. I've done that work for years. I know other people have done that work for years and the work is not sexy and it does not follow any news cycle. 
The question is, are you willing to be engaged in the proactive long haul conversation down the road, especially if you have power and privilege? If you do not think that your voice with power and privilege will change the vote of your local politician, you're wrong. And if you don't do that, it is literally costing people's lives. And I do not say that sensationally. That's how change happens. And we are all called to that work. And so plea and pray because you're people of faith. Ask God to intervene because we believe that God is a God of liberation. But if we are not participating in proactive, long conversation, long-term change in this country, then are we truly following? And this is not guilt and shame. This is, I hope that we're all waking up. It should not take more deaths. It should not take sensationalism of news cycles and social media feeds for those of us to have power and privilege, to use our power and privilege to demand change in the country that gives us that power and privilege. We're gonna get back into our groups and answer this question. What's one action step you can take this week towards the long haul? Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.